Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. like to welcome everyone. This is the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're excited to have you here today. And uh, we have someone that I've known for a long time, and we certainly have a lot of common interests, my buddy Egbert Perry. So what's happening, man? How you doing today? I can't complain. I could, but nobody wants to hear it. So I'm doing fantastic. Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just so you guys know, watching this uh, this podcast, we... Um, Edward and I have a, a lot of mutual interests, one being South Africa of all places, and uh, have been to a, a lot of similar places, and actually he uh, recommended some places for me on my last trip down there, so I had a great time, and uh, we both love the tapestry of the city and, you know, Joburg and Cape Town, the great, fantastic places to be, so absolutely, yes. yeah. Have you been back there lately? Uh, no, I haven't done anything in a couple of, next couple of years, I expect to do a lot more. Uh, catching up on travel, but COVID has changed the world. And so I'm no different. I'm having the same experience everyone else did. Yeah. Trying to get back to a new normal. Yeah, I know that feeling. Actually, because my um my last trip, as you know, was 2019. Right after that, you know, because I was there in October and COVID started breaking out like November, December. So yes. Yeah, yeah. it kind of changed a lot of stuff. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that, but I uh, appreciate you you getting into that detail. So, Edward, as you know, we, uh, we're excited to have you here today. Uh, you've become a, a bit of a legend here in the Atlanta market. So uh, we're always happy to have someone local <laughs> that we can brag on and talk about. So, you know, I appreciate you calling out some minutes for us. So uh, for those who don't know you, which I, I doubt that very seriously, but tell us who you are, if you don't mind, and, and what you do for a living. So my name is Egbert Perry. I am chairman and CEO of The Integral Group. An Integral Group is a community development and commercial real estate firm. And we do a lot of public-private partnerships, transforming and repurposing large horizontal sites in neighborhoods, as well as a lot of vertical development. And so we have over our 30-year history, in fact, in January, we'll be 30 years old, the company. We've made our share of mistakes, so we know what we're doing now. And um, we've done projects in probably, I would say, 20 or so cities across the country. Mm -hmm. And hope to keep doing what we do. Our commitment is to, our mission says, to create value in cities and rebuild the fabric of communities. And that's what we set out on 30 years ago. And it's what we expect to continue doing. All right, fantastic, fantastic. So, you know, that's um, really exciting. It's admirable. And, uh, you know, one of your legendary projects, uh, just to go back a little bit, I, I got to say, uh, this is the first time this morning I got a chance to see your uh, timeline and history on your website. And uh, that's pretty impressive. I like what you did there, you know, especially with the charcoal pictures and then it turns the color. So that's very nice, man. <laughs> Good job on that. Thank you. You know. But um, one of your, your landmark projects was uh, what you did here in Atlanta prior to the Olympics. And that was uh, basically showing how you don't have to have these 
ghetto housing projects and how you can integrate that into a, a, a more stable part of society. And um, if you can't talk to us a little bit about that, because most of us here are from Atlanta and we'll know about that project. That goes back to all the way to, I think, 94, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. So I left the career I had before. I had spent 13 years as at H.J. Russell and Company, and the last 12 of those 13, I was head in the company. And so to leave that had to be, uh, I had to be motivated or seduced by a bigger vision. Mm -hmm. And the vision was what I just articulated a moment ago. And really and truly, it was going to be to transform urban America. Then I was going to the Caribbean and then I was going to the African continent. Okay. okay. And here it is 30 years later, I'm still just here. But that being said, it was really to try and change what we had gotten accustomed to, which was based on your economic circumstances, your options in life were set. And I always say that if you're, I was born in a place and at a time, because it's not the same today, where poverty was not a crime because everybody was poor. And so I didn't know I was poor until I came to this country. And in Antigua, which is where I'm from, the Antigua of the 50s and 60s, we had a population of 60,000 people. I am number nine of 11 kids. Mm. My household income, entire, all 11 kids and mother and father was about $1,000 US. And we were considered high society. <laughs> uh, at least that's what I thought. Okay. I went to the best school you could go to on the island, and it cost $33 in our currency a year. I'm, I'm sorry, a term and three terms a year. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's like $100 Eastern Caribbean currency, which is like $40 US. So that's what it costs to send a kid to school for a whole year. So you, I came out at a time and in a place where, as I said, poverty wasn't a crime. And the thing that's clear to me is in this country and in the quote unquote industrialized world, poverty is a crime. If you're born poor and God forbid, black or brown, particularly black, the sentence for being poor, since it is a crime, is you're going to get the worst educational options in life. You're going to live in the worst environment and therefore your trajectory is set downwards before you even come out the womb and so after being in this country i came to this country in 1970 i set out on this sort of idealistic vision that is integral and we were going to change the economic circumstances as well as the trajectory for people that look like me that were in communities of concentrated poverty. Mm -hmm. And we we're gonna break it all up because sociologically it didn't work, it doesn't work. And so Centennial Place was an attempt to do that. Okay. And Centennial Place was the result of a, our responding to a solicitation. And by the way, I had a business partner Clyde Gums, who I met at the school I went to when I first came here. I finished my last two years of high school at the boarding school in New York. Mm -hmm. And 
there's a guy there. I met him there. We both went to same university for seven or eight years together. He stayed up northeast. I came to the south, going trying to get back to warm weather. And so we both started Integral together as 50-50 partners. And we were a two-person firm when we responded to a solicitation from the Atlanta Housing Authority to reposition the site of what was the first public housing project ever built in the United States, dedicated back in 1936 by Roosevelt. It was Techwood Homes. And it had it and an accompanying on adjacent public housing project named Clark Howell Homes together sat on 60 acres. Highest crime, Atlanta in 1994 had the highest violent crime rate in the entire country. Mm -hmm. This was the most violent address in that most violent city. And average household income for 1,100 public housing households was $4,300 a year. And so we responded to an RFP to partner with the authority to do something with that property. And so we did all of all the stuff we had dreamed about doing. We said mm-hmm. we were going to do on that site. We didn't know what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along. But we responded and we were one of five respondents and we were selected because we had this grand vision that said, tear it all down. It was God-awful environment for young people who were destro- being destroyed there. And we needed a new vision. And so we came up with a concept. We created an early childhood development center, YMCA, mixed income housing, rental and ownership, a school, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, we built a community on that 60 acres that was economically integrated. I don't really care that much about racial integration. I My premise is if you offer a good product that's attractive to people, across all economics. Mm-hmm. If racial integration happens, fine. If it doesn't, the issue is more economic integration. That's the issue or challenge that we need to address mm-hmm. than the other. And so, so we went down that path and we broke ground in early 96. And the first mixed income community like that in the country was created. And it was served as the legal, regulatory, and financial model. And we woke up the next day and we were national experts. <laughs> and, okay. and, yes. And so uh, HUD declared it the national model. And uh, over time, we've done a lot of it, but we've made the business decisions that just you're confronted with as you're running a business. And over time, we're both horizontally and vertically integrated. So we are today about a 300-person firm. We operate, have investments in about 20 cities, but we're really headquartered in Atlanta and for the most part are a southeastern firm, even though we we do work on the West Coast, Denver, and uh, Dallas, and so on. But we are very heavily concentrated uh, in the southeast. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, you you brought up something that I I certainly want to go back to, you know, the whole idea of this podcast and how it even came about. 
was the idea of trying to encourage those others that are either new to commercial real estate or even the next generation behind us to get into this space, to learn it and to access opportunities that are available to us in this space. Uh, as you know, the percent of minorities in commercial real estate is minuscule compared to other industries. And uh, you mentioned something here that I, I want to go back to because it's pretty impressive. You said you were a two-person firm when you signed on and went after the RFP for that development in the city of Atlanta. What kind of courage did that place possibly take in order to do that as a two-person firm? It would have been easy to say there's no way they're going to pick us, you know, with the cars of the world and, you know, Shoke and all these other companies. Why would they pick us? How, how did you even have the courage to do that? Well, so let me clear off a couple of things because it didn't take a lot of courage really and I don't want to put that word on as the as if somehow we had some special courage what happened wow. was about 91 uh -huh. I was I had to go to New York on business Russell business and I called up that buddy he was at, in the legal and credit departments at the Bank of New York and I called him up and said look I'm going to this meeting. Why don't you pick me up and we'll go together? Mm -hmm. So he picked me up. I got in early and we had time to kill. The meeting was on the east side of Manhattan. And he drove me through a very circuitous route through Harlem, arrived at the east side of Manhattan. And we got to the, it's the IBM building. Mm -hmm. And we were sitting on the bench outside. We had about still had about 45 minutes despite killing time yeah. and he said okay so tell me why that looks like that and this looks like this and what would it take for that to look like this and i said i have no idea but i'll answer a different <laughs> question yeah. what would that need to look like in order for me to want to live here and i about i guess in reflection about 10 minutes later he said okay time out You've been talking extemporaneously for 10 years with passion and energy, answering my question. If you can do that like that so easily, that's what you should be doing with your life. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I tell you what, I will quit what I'm doing if you quit what you're doing and we start a company to do that. So, oh, wow. that's, so that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And in between January of 93, I left Russell December of 92, December 31st, 1992. Between January and June, we put about 50,000 miles on my car. <laughs> we drove all over the country, all over, up and down the Northeast Corridor. We were looking at ways people were trying to do development and so on. And we saw the same thing. Everybody thought you build a stadium or performing arts center or an arena or whatever. And you give some people some jobs there that somehow it was going to lift all boats and everything would be wonderful. And nobody was really tackling the problem head on, yeah. which was we had sentenced people to lives of concentrated poverty where they could never break that trajectory, mm -hmm. absent sort of huge intervention, tremendous amount of luck and a whole lot of grace. And so the system as designed didn't work. And we said, people are trying to do the heavy work in hopes that they do net positive without ever tackling the negative. 
And it would be so much better, so many lives change if you could go and tackle the negative head on. Mm -hmm. So we had been thinking about it. We wrote it up and so on. So by the time the RFP came out and we weren't doing it with public housing in mind at all, we were just thinking of neighborhoods that were anything but. I had never been to a public housing project in my life prior to that. So we responded and we were confident that when we found out that it was coming out, we looked at each other and said, there isn't a human being on the planet. There's no firm out there that could beat us because we actually have been thinking about this. And more important than that, we were thinking about it as if we were the people that it was designed to affect. Because mm-hmm. most of the time when people come up with policy, they think they're doing it for somebody else. Yeah. And we were answering the question, what would that need to be like for me to want to be there? And so it was very much person-centric. And so, and we won. I mean, the residents, there were residents of the public housing community that were on the selection committee. Housing authority had people, city had people. We won on all counts, highest score by far. And everybody was fascinated and we got scared. Where the courage came from is after we got selected, we realized we didn't know what the hell we were talking about. (laughs) Intellectual. And there was a need to really figure out what it is we had been saying that we'd been writing up nicely on paper. Mm -hmm. And so it took us 18 months. But I did call a friend of mine in um, St. Louis, a guy named Richard Barron. He has a company named McCormick Barron and Associates. Mm -hmm. And they had done some mixed income housing, not anything like this. And we needed a resume because this was a national competition. So what we did is I called Richard and said, listen, we're a two-person firm. There are going to be respondents that are national Mm -hmm. that will show X number of years of history. And even though I had a decent brand in Atlanta, just from having run the Russell company for all those years, actually had a relatively good positioning, but Integral didn't have that history. And so we formed a venture called the Integral Partnership of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And they're 49%, we're 51 And I became project manager. So I literally went from president of Russell back to day-to-day running resident meetings, master planning the sites, doing all the work as if I was back, you know, 14, 15 years as a project manager. And just, you know, because it was a vision I had that mm-hmm. I was going to try and put life to. So it wasn't courage. It was, may have been stupidity at the time because I gave up a pretty good career to start over again. But um, I was motivated. Yeah, it looks like it, it panned out, you know. Yeah. You didn't get that RFP, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about that. Right. Now, that was, yeah, and that was that was nip and tuck there for a while, yes. Yeah, yeah. So everything kind of kind of panned out. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned another point because I talked about the two-person team when you went after this against national players, and I appreciate your response to that. Um, but you mentioned also that you set up a team, basically. Uh-huh. You try to go at it alone. You, you you realize that you needed a broader resume, right? So you got together with others in order to do that. Yeah. Uh, how important do you think that is going forward as well? Because 
one of the, the things that we talked about in promoting this podcast was, um, you know, opening up the playbook. You know, how do you go from a poor kid in the Caribbean to running a, a billion dollar real estate development firm? And there's obviously been partnerships and, and other things that were done throughout the years in order to make that happen, I would assume. Well, I know it happened because you just told us about one. So, you know, how important do you think that is to anyone that, that's trying to um, advance their careers in that space? I didn't have any misconception about what I was stepping into. I mean, I did have 13 years plus one, a year before Russell. So 14 years mm -hmm. as a professional. And because of the position I had been in, I pretty much had eyes wide open when I stepped into to this. And I really wasn't thinking about anything of scale. In fact, I said... My buddy and I decided we didn't want a firm with more than 12 people in it. Don't ask me oh. why 12. I, we just picked 12 yeah. and said, because people are a pain in the behind and you don't want, you don't want to. Want to people. I know that feeling. Okay. <laughs> so that's literally what we said. Um, shows you how the Lord looks out for babies and fools. Yeah. Um, we're too old to be babies. So we didn't really know what the journey was going to be. We really got into it to do this thing and we're gonna create a model and then we may do one or two more of them, but other people will get the vision and capture the model and they would do it. And we'll have this renaissance to transform our communities. We were naive as the Dickens, <laughs> idealistic as hell a whole lot of lessons learned. And along the way, the other thing that was obvious is this is brain damage work. Yeah. And you can only do but so much of that before you want to blow your brains out. Yeah. So as we once we got started, the business decisions sort of take over. You have to do the things that make sense. Mm -hmm. And you can't remain in business. Our mantra was and is we want to do well while doing good. Mm -hmm. Not do good and do well, or do good while doing well. Mm -hmm. At the core, it was about doing good. Mm -hmm. And we needed to do it in a way that we could pay bills and have a business because we did not come out of a nonprofit background. We were business people, both business sure. people. And so that was our mantra. It still is today. Mm -hmm. And part of how you do well while doing good is you make the appropriate business decisions along the way. Mm -hmm. So, the, and I just bear with me a second, and this is how I describe what we do. So I've got my two hands up. Mm -hmm. Think of my left hand as community development mm -hmm. and the right hand as commercial real estate. Community development is about that. The adjective is important, community. It's about community, it's about people, it's about transformation, it's about mission with a big M, mm -hmm. and profit is small to medium size, so you don't get rich doing this. Mm -hmm. It's about Main Street. The other end of the spectrum is commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is about the deal. Mm -hmm. What are my returns? How much money am I making? The big P for profit very small M for mission, if the M exists at all. Mm -hmm. And it's about Wall Street. Those two 
are as different as night and day. The culture required to run a commercial real estate business and a community development business, very different. Mm -hmm. The people on the left think these people in the commercial real estate space are greedy bastards. Mm -hmm. And the people in commercial real estate think the people on the other end are bleeding heart liberals. Mm -hmm. They don't like each other. They don't talk to each other. They don't coexist very well. We made a decision along the way that we needed to look a lot like synchronized swimming, where above the surface, everything looks nicely coordinated and so on. But when you put the camera down below the water, you see the arms flailing and so on, trying to maintain balance. That's kind of what we are. When we get a project, we have to decide how much and how exactly is community development going to show up in what we're doing mm -hmm. versus commercial real estate. Okay, so what's the right blend of affordability and what kind of other quality of life infrastructure is going to be included mm -hmm. in the plan for the site and so on. So you're trying to do those things that are good for family and community and so on, and those things that are good for your investors. And that's the challenge. So we may come out with a vision, but we have fought inside these doors, behind these doors, to argue how much of this and how much of that is going to make its way into the plan. Yeah. So, and we, we've been lucky. I mean, we've gotten a few things done and have, we've probably done 80 projects over the 30 years. We've had a couple of failures and, you know, that that always helps to <laughs> improve what you around you, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, it is, I wish I could say we had this great vision, we laid it out and boom, here we go. If we did that, it would be revisionist history. We just sort of made it up as we went along and partnerships are important, relationships are important, but most important of all is staying true to what at a core you, you believe in. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to ever wonder or check my principles. They're always there. They're what drive me. And it's not possible for me to have those principles corrupted because they are part and parcel of who and what I am. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, I, I was about to say that was so good. I wish I had it recorded, but we do. So that's <laughs> 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 no, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. You know, it's, it's amazing because the, the doing good or doing well while doing good is um, has almost become a mantra, if you will, amongst a lot of the, especially the minority developers. And when you're talking mm -hmm. to pension funds and others, you know, you're talking about the money from the garbage man guy and the yeah. school teacher and all these type of community service individuals that are living in oftentimes not great facilities, right. yet still they deserve to live somewhere nice. That's right. and, and you have to balance that with gentrification. Yep. Where prices aren't so high that everybody has to leave. So, yes. you know, how do you do that? How do you uh, uh, encourage housing so that the schools are elevated as well? So many things come into play. So I can imagine how that can really be a, a battle trying to get that to um, to come together. But but that mantra of uh, not having to feel like, you know, I, I displaced uh, a little old grandmother that's lived in X neighborhood for so many years because it's now unaffordable. Uh, could certainly be a challenge because investors in Wall Street don't, well, I'm not going to say they don't care, 
but you know what I mean. It, it's not. It's all about returns, right? What, yeah. Well, my return on cost. What's my this? What's my that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me let me just make a comment about that because sure. uh, people talk about gentrification, and I tend to challenge what exactly when somebody says gentrification and they say, "What do you think about that?" or "How do you feel about that?" I always say, "Okay, explain to me what gentrification means to you before I answer the question." And so I, I'm not asking you to do that, but I would say we need to differentiate between involuntary displacement that happens as a result of a push of higher incomes into a neighborhood, Mm -hmm. as distinguished from the desire to have greater disposable income in a neighborhood, which is actually usually a plus. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I mean by that? If you're in a neighborhood that is concentrated with poverty, Mm -hmm. the challenge you need to overcome is you can say you're going to put a grocery store because people need a grocery store. And that sounds really great. But I don't know any business person that says, oh, yeah, I'm going to locate my business in a place where people don't have money to buy what I'm selling. (laughs) So the, the neighborhoods, we are in the business in this country and in all of the industrialized world, it's how the new world was created. Mm-hmm. Winners and losers were picked, usually based on race. The losers lived in hells and the winners lived in heavens. And we've spent all of our time creating heavens and hells. If you have money, we've got this for you. If you don't have any money, we're going to concentrate you over here in a compound. Yeah. And it's a containment strategy. Mm-hmm. And what we were hell-bent on doing is eliminating the heavens and hell strategy and create sustainable communities that had a mix of some of the people who were trying to help uplift blended with people with more disposable income. So when you're finished, the community has enough disposable income to be attractive to businesses, whether it's grocery stores and so on and so forth. If you don't have disposable income and you're going to fight against things that bring disposable income into the neighborhood, that's foolhardy. Now, anything at the extreme is not good. Mm -hmm. So if you have extreme poverty and just open door, open season on people with higher incomes coming in and taking over the neighborhood, that's not good. So I'm clear about that. But what we have failed to do in most cases is have the right kind of partnership between our public sector and our private sector to build the kind of communities we want. And the only reason, if you think about it a generation ago, as neighborhoods were going in decline, whether it's a result of crack cocaine and other things that ravaged the community, You didn't have the political leadership, some of whom look like us, saying, you know what, we need to protect these neighborhoods and let's let's bring police in there and let's do X, Y, and Z because safety and security for that old lady who owns this home that is on a fixed income and her home is being devalued every day with the scourge of this coming into the neighborhood. We didn't protect them. We let the neighborhoods go all the way down. And then as soon as 
higher income folks, sometimes, oftentimes not looking like us, are buying. They're just making what they think is a good business decision. Mm-hmm. Here's something I can buy on the cheap, fix it up and make a lot of money. Well, I don't blame them for that. Mm-hmm. I blame our lack of good public policy and commitment to the community when it was in the decline that caused it to get to that extreme a condition. And oh, by the way, as soon as those people start moving in, everybody starts saying, oh, we need to have police living in the neighborhood and we need all these things. All of a sudden, we care about the safety and security of the new residents. We didn't care about them, the safety and security when the old residents were on the siege. Mm -hmm. So we are at fault in a lot of ways for why we are where we are. And unfortunately, we've not been great investors. We've been great followers. So when everybody was leaving the cities, we followed them. Now they're coming back in the cities. Now we're coming back in, but we're always behind. So we're always paying top dollar. We paid top dollar when we left. And we're paying top dollar coming back. (laughs) That's disgraceful. And until we learn the difference between spending and investing, we're doomed to play this over and over and over again. That, to me, is the most unfortunate thing. I don't jump on this gentrification bandwagon. Mm -hmm. I start saying, pick up a mirror, look in the mirror and see what we are doing or not doing Mm -hmm. that's making that happen to our communities. Yeah, very, very powerful point. You know, it's um, it's amazing uh, when you think about it because at the end of the day, it's it's one thing to talk about it, but then what are you doing about it? Yes. And and you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say it, it is a real challenge and balancing act because uh, everybody wants to say, why is my neighborhood so run down? Why is it so? Why is it we don't have good grocery stores and I got to travel five miles to go go shopping? You know, why are all these things happening? But then when you bring that in, you have to do it in a balanced way that doesn't run everybody out and make That's everything right. too expensive, make taxes go up. You know, right. it's, it's a real balancing act. And, and one, right. way, one way you do it is by increasing density so you can balance that out. Yes. And a lot of people don't realize that as well. But, you know, yes. it has to happen. So, Well, and, and it's often a problem where if we get in positions of leadership and all we do is become caretakers over the very systems that were used to dispossess us, whether it's we're now at City Hall or we're running the school system and all we're doing is now we're a black-skinned person in that position, but the processes, the systems, what we do in that classroom is the same thing that was being done before. Mm then what the hell is the point, right? The the fact is we need to understand that we can't just step in and be caretakers. We need to transform, blow up if necessary, the systems that are in place that are not serving us well. And if we're not willing to do that, we shouldn't be running for office. We shouldn't be elected into office because when we go in, we should be doing something different from status quo because status quo doesn't work. And so that's often a disappointment. Sometimes it's hard to have us see that we have total ability to transform our own circumstances. We can complain all day long, 
folks for whom the system is working, they're not going to change it. And so, and that's just human nature. So it's incumbent on those that think the system doesn't work, that when they get in positions of leadership, change the system. And we don't do enough of that. So there's a certain amount of self-accountability that's missing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big issue, a real, real big issue. You know, it's uh, but it goes back to you know not complaining, but doing something about it. And uh, I will say, as as part of your career, and you know, I want to give you you credit for that. Um, you know, you have focused on doing something about it. You know, not just talking it, but actually walking the walk. So, you know, we certainly appreciate you for that. What I'm going to do at this point, uh, Egbert, is open up the line. Uh, while you were talking, uh, you know, we had a little aiming corner going on here. So we're going to let those folks start asking any questions you have. So you can raise your digital hand or you can put it in the chat. And we'll make sure uh, we get Egbert to um, answer those questions as we kind of go along here. Joel, in addition to the aiming Please. corner, I, I hope to hear from those who say this boy is crazy as hell. <laughs> <And>, uh, whatever. <laughs> We'll see if we got anybody that's going to say that to you today. They might be afraid to do that. So that's a pretty bold thing. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So so tell me about this. Um, you mentioned a, a bunch of other projects. As I mentioned, you've done a, a great job on your, your website with some of the other projects that you've done. What are some other projects that you're proud of um, in addition to Centennial Park uh, here in Atlanta that, um, you know, we might not be aware of? Anything oh, and let me clarify. So... I'll make one clear distinction and then I'll answer the question. Centennial, there is a Centennial Park, which is the park that was created for the Olympics. Centennial Place is our development. Okay. But it so so happens that a portion of that site, the, the home ownership portion is called Centennial Park North. Okay. Okay, and so it's all confusing. And I actually live in Centennial Park North. So I moved into that development just because uh, I'm not trying to impress anybody. That's just, I chose to live in the same community. We have a lot. It's really a difficult question to answer. I mean, we've done projects all over the country, as I said, in 20 plus cities. And in half of those situations, it was the first time ever that a project attempted to do some of the things we set out to do. So I feel good about those, um, even the ones that are not as holistic or comprehensive and successful as Centennial. But we, because we've moved all the way across the spectrum, we've done affordable with a capital A, we've done workforce, which is what I call 60 to 120% of area median income. Mm-hmm. So serving households in that range. We've done pure market, but in almost all cases, and we don't ever really do 100% low income communities. One exception is seniors. We'll sometimes do a senior building that's 100% serving 100% low income seniors. But whenever we're doing family or so housing units, we always do a mixed income. So sometimes we're mixing affordable with either workforce or market, or we're uh, uh, mixing workforce with market. 
So we're always in one of those two if we're doing multifamily. And that's philosophical. And so we have done very large scale horizontal mixed use developments that have a lot of different components, residential, retail, office, hotel, and so on. And when we do the residential, we do it in a mixed income structure. The other components, the retail, the office, hotel, and so on, we typically partner because that's not what we consider to be our core expertise. We consider our core expertise to be residential mm-hmm. or multifamily. And you know, we've done some bold things. We acquired a 165-acre General Motors plant a few years ago, which we renamed Assembly. And we got started, we created a movie studio just because we needed to drive energy to the site Mm -hmm. and woke up and we all of a sudden, here we are, we we have a movie studio where the movie Rampage was filmed, Mile 22, Ozarks, the series for a couple seasons, et cetera, et cetera. And then we sold the whole assembly site, the remaining 127 acres that had not been developed. We sold it last year. And then four months later, we decided to sell that studio. We'll probably create another studio development. So there's not a something. I would say one last thing. It's a long answer to the question. I'm sorry. (laughs) No problem. When we think of the work we do and we look at an area, we say, okay, we have nine pillars of what it takes to have a healthy, sustainable community. Mm -hmm. And when we look at it, our work becomes, if we take on a project that's located in a particular area, we say, all right, what's missing of those nine? Mm -hmm. And that becomes the work that needs to be done. And so it's very easy to figure out what we're going to do. And some of the work that needs to be done, we can do. Some we can cause to have done. Some we'll partner with others to do. and some. is already fine and in place and no need to touch that. So I I don't have a very specific answer. I would hate to celebrate one other than Centennial, which was the first one. I'd hate to celebrate any one. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, that's fine. You know, we'll accept your answer. (laughs) So now there was a couple of things that have come in the chat that... um, uh, you've kind of already touched on. One was about the decision behind selling the GM site. I said you did answer it, but um, was there anything else behind that decision to, to sell it that uh, you want to go into or you want to just kind of leave it where it is right now? There were a couple of things when we got into it. So for everyone on the podcast, it's 165 acres. It was a General Motors plant from 1941 to 2007, mm-hmm. and then General Motors shut it down. And so to sit in there, 4 million square feet of buildings on this site, sort of balkanized its own little footprint. And it is sitting fallow for all this time. Nobody could figure out how to get past the, this big monstrosity with all these structures on it. And so we decided to tackle it because it was well situated and if we could get over that hurdle it had a lot of potential and so over the first few years we were able to come up with some creative financial structures 
to fund infrastructure development of it. We evaluated all the salvage and pre-sold all the salvage to help pay for the acquisition of the site because General Motors wanted real money for it. And so after we got in it, some of the local politics changed. We didn't like some of the dynamics. We think some of the politics changed because of skin color. Anyway, and we had a buyer that showed up, even though we were prepared to do this as a 15 or 20 year project where we were going to develop it piece by piece, block by block. Somebody showed up and wanted to buy the whole thing. And the price they offered was sufficiently attractive. And the dynamics in the local community had changed enough that we didn't really need to be there. And so it just was perfect for us to exit. So we exited stage left. It was very attractive financially for our investors and everybody was happy. And so that was it. It was just in the final analysis, a business decision. And then once we were no longer there with that large project, the fact that we owned a movie studio at that site, then there was no attraction or reason to remain there. So that party wanted to buy the studio. So we subsequently sold the studio as well. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and they're doing more studios up there as, as well. I, I know for myself, um, I was thinking that that would have been a great Amazon site when they were looking for a, a second headquarters because, I mean, it's right on the rail line and everything else. I was like, man, right on 285. I was like, boy, this would be a great site. But The state, the state approached Amazon. The really? state came to us about the site and then oh. made, put it on their pitch to Amazon. Uh-huh. Amazon wanted to be more in the city. Oh, really? Okay. Than in the verbs. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. One other question related to that real quick. Renee said, uh, how long did it take to close from contract to close? So what would you uh, say to that? How long did it you, take to close that out? You mean for from for assembly? Yeah, for assembly. I guess, Renee, are you talking about when he acquired it? Or I guess when you were selling it? We are, uh, or when you went under contract and when it actually closed out? It was actually pretty quick. First of all, we acquired the site in 2014. Mm-hmm. We sold it last year, last March. We never really went on the co- we went on the contract and sold it within days, like within two or three days. But the truth is, we had the makings of an LOI, a, a letter of intent from as far back as maybe late January, but it was still pretty quick. It was 60 days because the people who the people who bought it originally bought the note that we had, hoping that COVID was, would cause us yeah. to be default or be on the financial stress and they yeah. could take the property. Yeah. And of course, we had a separate refinance and arranged Mm-hmm. And we did that so that we wouldn't sit down at the table to negotiate with a gun to our head. And so we went ahead and refinanced it. Mm-hmm. We rejected any conversations with them until we refinanced it so that they wouldn't think we would be a seller on the distress. Yeah. And then, so by the time we actually sat down and said, okay, let's talk, they had been looking at it for many, many, many months. Mm-hmm. And they were coming to 
to the table with us in a position of strength as opposed to a position of weakness. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, so they were pretty much ready to go. Yes. They had already vetted everything, so that, that makes sense. Yeah. Monica, let me go back to your question right quick. Uh, how do you handle your pre-design for selecting your sites? It's one thing to have people evaluate you to decide if they want to select you. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing brain damage work, where you're doing more for them than they're doing for you, because nobody wants to do this god-awful, difficult work, right? And so you step into the step to the table and you're saying, listen, I need to pre-qualify you just as much as you think you need to pre-qualify me. Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that you actually are committed to all the things you say you're committed to as a local government or as a redevelopment authority or a housing authority or maybe you're a church and you're putting your property into a plan and so on. I'm not interested in fighting against who would be the logical partners to want to do this work. So you may think you're trying to figure out we have the qualifications. I know we do. I want to figure out if you're a partner we would want to partner with mm -hmm. to do a project like this because it's going to get rough and you're going to need to be able to access tax abatement or tax increment financing or different kinds of subsidies to help drive and cause affordability to be done. And if you're not committed to the same values, then we wouldn't be good partners anyway. Yeah, good point. So, well, we'll see how that how that plays out. Let me let me do this real quick. Uh, Mi, you've got a long question here, so if you don't mind, can you unmute yourself and um, oh, Patricia, I guess that's it. it's about opportunity zones, and then you can ask your question. Yes. Yeah, first off, thank you so much um, for this this talk and for taking the time out to to be with us here today, Mr. Perry. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Joe, for always You're having. Welcome. Sessions. Yeah, so opportunity zones, you know, as you were talking about gentrification, and thank you for really clarifying that, you know, opportunity zones have come under fire. Obviously, there's a great opportunity um, for investors, particularly folks who have the resources to set up the funds and, and all that. Not so much for the little guy, unless he's really creative and, and joins and partners with other folks. But so, you know, they it gets a bad rap for not having some protections and really uh, incentivizing Wall Street to come in and do this this gentrification. And so my question is, I know there's probably not a lot of data out. I, I haven't checked, but they're still fairly new. And, and even though it's been out, they've been out for a few years, people are still just as the last couple of years started really tapping into them. So, but I don't know if you know if there's, or have a preliminary assessment with regard to do you think that it's a net benefit or liability for these for persons of color, low-income persons in these communities? Um, first off, second. First year, we're down to like six minutes. So can we okay. just that one and, and just get some others also? Okay. And then okay. just if he can just share whether or not he's used that strategy, whether he thinks that that's a strategy that, that works for his organization, if he's used it as well. Thanks. Okay. okay, Joel, I'll take that as more your comment about the time as being more directed to me because I'm long-winded. So I'll try to be short. <laughs> and answer the question. Um, no, I'm trying to respect your time. We no, I know you are. So, yeah. 
So, I'm informing myself as well. Okay. Uh, um, so actually, I think it's a good strategy. The problem is we don't have money. Oh, we have income. We don't have a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. We don't have, we're not in and out of monetizing investments often enough to be looking for shelter. So theoretically, even though intellectually it's a good program, it really is designed for the benefit of the people who are looking for the tax benefits. Awesome, yeah. And so it's no different from just about any other effort we're involved in. We're usually showing up the tape at the table. Beggar is the wrong word, but but begging because the, the dollars are coming from somewhere else. I, just as a quick anecdote, I was involved in editing the legislation on behalf of Senator Scott at a request that a friend of his made to me to look at it. The legislation was much worse before we looked at it. You couldn't play in the game unless you had a $500 million investment portfolio that you'd managed and so on and so forth. All of that was stripped to make it accessible by the small person. But, you know, still, it's a it's a benefit for the the person with a lot of capital gains and that often is not a lot of us okay all right well appreciate that <laughs> and i can elaborate on that after and then yeah, yeah. we'll we'll definitely definitely do that okay. Altamese d's uh what are your thoughts about investors coming in building apartment buildings are these good or bad for the community i guess you're talking about outside investors you know that that almost sounds similar to the Opportunity zone question. So hopefully that that may have answered that. So let later let, we'll come back to that. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to announce something at the end of this call that might be beneficial. But we're getting a lot of response here, so that's that's real good. Um, Uriah asks for your first few projects. What strategies did you use to acquire your initial equity portion to qualify for construction loans RFPs? It's a good question. Yeah, that is a great question. The, we actually have a little bit of a window now that's very different from back in the day. When we started, people were still leaving the cities and nobody was trying to move back into cities. That sounds strange, but that's, no, I realize that's, yeah. that's 30 years ago. And so it was really, really difficult then. So in our first few deals, we actually did 221D4 financing. Okay, that's not take financing. financing, right which eliminated a lot of the hurdles, or we looked for agency financing, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So we used those routes to find our long-term permanent capital commitment, and then it was easier to get the construction loans. I think today there's a window open for access to parts of money that are looking to lend with diverse developers. So you have a little window there, to jump in quickly and before the psychology and the guilt changes, you can you will have built up some track record that allows you to access more conventional sources. Okay, okay. Sounds good. Appreciate that. That makes a, a good point. That FHA financing, by the way, reduces the amount of equity you got to bring to a deal, making it easier. Great point, Joel. In fact, probably the highest return we ever had was because we did a D4 
commercial real estate transaction or mixed income with D4 financing. Mm-hmm. So we got all the way up to 87% leverage. Mm-hmm. So we only had 13% equity needed. Mm-hmm. And we put that in among our partners. So we didn't need to go to a third party. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely profitable because of the leverage. Gotcha, gotcha. They take forever to close, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, you gotta have extra years. To work on it, Every, everything can't be great. You yeah, know? right, right, <laughs> exactly. So, oh man. All right, let's see here. Quinn Antigol has was a significant supporter of the return of REIT to the Atlanta market years ago. It would be great to get some insight into why you support or why that support was given when it was and why programs like REAP are important to moving the needle on diversity and CRE? Well, truth is, there's one, one of our principals is a guy named Eric Pinkney. And Eric came to me one day and said, man, we have, we've been, we're old guys. We've been out here a long time. We have all these young folks wanting to do such and such. Yeah. We need to figure out ways to bring them into the industry and make sure they don't make the same mistakes we made and so on and so forth. And he pressed and pressed, and we had this big training room in our building, in our office. And he said, why don't we just let them have some of the classes here? And we started, fell in love with the idea, saw a lot of bright-eyed people the way we looked 30 years ago, (laughs) and said, hey, this is not a bad thing. This is a way. And so that's really how it happened. Um, And we think it's important to expose more often than not, we're not in places really because we're just not exposed to those places. Yeah. And so as a result, it was, uh, that's what drove it. Just yeah. that. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's it. It's all about exposure. And I, I got to be honest, say, but this is kind of how this whole podcast thing came about because there was a lot of talk of, you know, how do we get in touch with the instructors after the class? <laughs> and I was teaching capital markets and it was like, I'll be available. I'll make myself available. Mm-hmm. And it started off as one hour a week. I said, I'll make myself available, answer questions, et cetera, et cetera. And I led to this. So, you know, okay. I, I, I appreciate you, you doing that. I do want to say this also, you know, kind of as we wrap up here, because the questions keep coming. And this is beautiful. This is what we want you to do. But we are looking into, uh, and Chai, my assistant, will be talking about this in a little bit more detail. We're looking at creating a, a membership site where you can get these questions put together. We'll get them over to the experts of the world, get them answered, and then you'll have those uh, questions that you have answered directly from individuals like an Egbert Perry, as opposed to um, you know just trying to be on a call once, once who knows when in order to uh, get them answered in a form like this. So we're going to try to expand this and make some things happen to uh, give you more access to, to getting your questions answered by superstars in the industry like, like my buddy Egbert. So... Uh, we really appreciate it. <laughs> so, more of that to come. We're going to try to launch that in 2023. So we're working on that now. We'll give you more details on that. Okay. So we're we're a little over time, but look, I, I wanted to ask you about the future of Integral. You know, T. Dallas Smith is winding down on this thing. You're doing some things with him, but in 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 holistic terms, if we were to just kind of uh, give you the last word, what would you want everyone to know, especially those ones that are looking to Get exposed to commercial real estate, do more in commercial real estate. You know, you've kind of been a, a bit of a trailblazer. Uh, what would you want them to know as we wrap up for today? I think of business this way. You don't have to go too far back before none of us would have been at the table at all 
in commercial real estate or just about any business sector. That's just that far back. Mm -hmm. So none of the infrastructure that exists ever was put in place with any of us in mind. So we do not have what I call market permission. Mm -hmm. We do not have permission by the marketplace to be at the table, which means it's always going to be more difficult. And as a result, you should never be disheartened when it looks like the deck is stacked against you because it is for the reason I just gave. And you're not not only not welcome, you're not desired at the table. So all of that taken together means you have to be able to collaborate with each other more. It's too heavy a lift if you're doing it all by yourself all the time because you want to be king or queen of nothing or king or queen of a little, little, little thing Mm -hmm. when you can be princes and princesses and so on. And God forbid, I'm not talking about the the monarchy. No, I get Uh, it. But a a piece of a billion dollar pie is better than 100% of $10. Absolutely. (laughs) And it really does require collaboration. And so, you know, I would encourage us all to think about that, that the way to scale quickly is through collaboration, partnerships, and so on. And that's something that doesn't come easy for us for a lot of reasons, which we can't get into here, but it's essential. So I would just encourage that. Yeah, yeah. well, very powerful words. Um, You know, Egbert, it's it's even better than I thought. So it was a fantastic (laughs) job done today. Uh, A lot of wisdom, a lot of uh, valuable insights, and I, I thank you so much for it, you know, I would just uh, love one day to be sitting down in, in Cape Town. Maybe we'll run into each other together down there and have a glass of wine or something. Up That's in a wine country. It'll be beautiful. But, um, man, this has been fantastic. And, uh, you know, we got to get you back. So we'll we'll wait a few months and, and try to call back on you again because this is really good. And a lot of questions are still here. So, uh, you know, we would love to get those additional insights. But, so, man, Joel, you can, yeah. you can ask me after. Okay. And I will try and answer any questions I didn't answer on the okay. on the thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. So you want me to just get those to you afterwards? Yeah, that's fine. That'll be okay. fine. Okay. All right. So we'll okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All okay. right. So everybody, thank you so much. This is thank you all very morning much. with Joel CRE podcast. And again, special thanks to Egbert Perry for being with us this morning. It's been beautiful. Uh, we will have your comments in the chat in our chat when we download this session and we will make sure that uh, we get those over to Egbert. So thank you all for being here. Egbert, have a fantastic day. Looking to run into you. I'll see you again soon, my friend. All right. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to write a brief review. And as always, continue to invite, share, and subscribe.